1: Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an LA County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me at joshuaritter.com. We're recording this on Friday, November 4th, 2022. In this week's episode, dramatic court action as a mother testifies against her son for the Pike County murders that nearly wiped out an entire family in rural Ohio as well as a heated exchange from Nicholas Cruz's defense team as victim impact statements were given in the Parkland shooters' sentencing hearing. And finally, we turn to Los Angeles for our continued coverage of two high-profile sexual assault cases taking place in the same courthouse for the trials of Danny Masterson and Harvey Weinstein. Today, we are excited to be joined by Greg Isaacs, a Tennessee-based criminal defense attorney and legal analyst that you can find on multiple media outlets. Welcome, Greg. Good to be here, Joshua. Absolutely. Uh, Before we jump into these cases, uh, we're excited to hear your thoughts on them. But could you tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice?
2: Uh, Right. We uh, we're a criminal defense uh, law firm. Uh, We do uh, a lot of the high profile uh, cases uh, in East Tennessee and other other states. We tried the first case uh, on court TV uh, that was televised in in Tennessee, Uh, have done a number of those. Uh, I've also been a legal analyst uh, for the last um, 20 years uh, and here with the people, I think, mutual friends such as um, On Court TV um, with Julie and um, have my own spot every week, uh, Ask Isaacs. Uh, So um, I appreciate you doing double duty as being a criminal defense lawyer and uh, hosting a, a podcast
1: absolutely well we're excited to have you um i've i've watched you many times on tv i appreciate your insights and so i'm really curious to hear your thoughts on these cases so let's dive right in we're talking uh first we go to waverly ohio where george wagner the fourth's murder trial continues for the pike county massacre that left eight members of the Roden family dead in rural ohio george's mother angela wagner took the stand for the prosecution to testify against her son Alleging that the entire family helped in the planning, execution, and cover up of the murders. According to Angela, she believed that her granddaughter, the child of her youngest son, Jake Wagner, and victim, Hannah Roden, was being abused by the Roden family. She alleged that her husband, Billy Wagner, was the catalyst for the murder plot. Angela Wagner struck a deal with prosecutors, receiving a 30 year sentence and agreeing to testify against any family members that went to trial. George's father, Billy Wagner, has also pled not guilty to the murders and is awaiting a trial date himself. Uh, Greg, let's talk about this testimony to begin with. Is this so damaging to hear uh, basically a co-conspirator? Is this so damaging to the defense that it's nearly insurmountable? What do you think?
2: Joshua, I think it is insurmountable because when you have a a co-conspirator, as you know, you look for ways— uh, to impeach the witness, and you look for bias, you look for inconsistencies. Uh, the big thing is motivation. What were they offered by the state uh, in order to uh, get their testimony? Uh, but in this case, uh, you have a, a family member, uh, so it's really going to be hard to get to that level of impeachment and bias uh, if you are um, defending uh, defendant in this case.
1: That's an interesting point that you bring up. And many times uh, when a co-conspirator is testifying against other folks, you hear about the deal that they got and you think to yourself, well, that's a real sweetheart deal. Obviously, that's the motive for why they're testifying. I'm saying from a defense perspective, how you would try to impeach them. Here she's getting 30 years. That's nothing to sneeze at. Um, Are the jurors really going to view that as her getting a break?
2: Well, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how how far uh, the defense and the prosecution get into the mechanics of that plea agreement. Uh, my understanding is uh, part of the agreement was uh, that the individuals on trial, uh, the death penalty was taken off the table. And, you know, Joshua, that always raises an inherent conflict to me when a prosecutor uh, tries to offer a plea agreement to your client. And also a third party, we're not going to indict the, the, the husband, the wife, the son, the daughter. And it really just creates a conflict that, that I think you may see down the road in the post-conviction or an appellate process. But, you know, if you're the jury, uh, I think it adds credibility to this grandmother uh, that she is now uh, agreeing to plead guilty. Uh, and not only did she get a reduction in her sentence, uh, but she saved the wives uh, of the others by, by getting the death penalty off the table
1: yeah that, i'm glad that you pointed that out that was something that i felt was curious myself in the sense that you don't see it all that often and and just to kind of flesh out what you were saying is that the deal that was made was that they would cooperate in exchange for the other members of the family who are still going to trial to not have to face the death penalty um again something that the defense might try to exploit to say well listen you're only testifying here to to help out your other family members but you know again that deal isn't so great we're talking about 30 years could essentially be life for this woman she's an elderly woman um and and still it though death is off the table it, it's still a life sentence so could you kind of flesh that out for us is is this was this a, I guess the question I have was, is this a good calculation on the prosecution's part because they're not giving all that much for this testimony?
2: Well, I think, and, and the facts of this case, if, if people aren't familiar, are are fascinating in, in one respect, but they're just uh, horrific in another. Uh, it's, it's like premeditation on steroids. This family uh, plotted to wipe out uh, an entire family based on a child custody dispute. Uh, what they wanted to do and what they, they arranged uh, was to uh, synchronize the murders of eight separate people at four separate locations. Uh, again, premeditation on steroids, planning, et cetera. So what the prosecution had to do was get someone that was in the room when the planning and the synchronicity uh, and all of that was ongoing. But to think about wiping out an entire generation. Uh, the biological mother, so she could not have custody, uh, but yet then her parents and grandparents, anyone that a juvenile court might seem fit uh, to step in and take uh, custody of his child. So once the prosecution got somebody that was in the room with that planning, uh, I think that's what their goal was. And I think it's almost going to be an insurmountable uh, hurdle for the defense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is a remarkable case from the perspective of how horrific it is, as you point out, and that they were able to pull it off, quite frankly. I mean, this is, you know, it sounds like some sort of a mafia hit, the way that, it, you know, several different locations, several, eight different people killed, and that they were able to systematically go about this is really horrific. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, I don't know how much experience you have with death penalty cases, but... You know, people fall all over the spectrum on this kind of politically on whether or not they're in favor of it. But let's talk about here how it still kind of is a valuable negotiating tool for prosecutors in the sense that they were able to use it as as some sort of leverage to get cooperation out of some family members in the sense that they said they would not seek the death penalty. What, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, ha- having tried a number of death penalty cases, um, it, it's... You know, the phrase, the ultimate trial really doesn't do credence when you're in that dynamic, when the state is trying to take the life of your client. And it's very powerful. You know, we talk about uh, death, penalty, and capital punishment in the rubric of of a political, uh, ideological debate often. Uh, But when you're in the courtroom, it's very powerful. So uh, I think what what these prosecutors did and, and other prosecutors do, is they use the specter of giving the notice of death uh, as a very strong bargaining chip, uh, and you know it's it's kind of like you're playing high-stake legal poker with someone's life because you know you really don't know if the state is going to uh, go to that next level to, to make this a death penalty case, and once they make that commitment. As you know, it changes the landscape completely. Defense is entitled to more lawyers, more experts. Uh, our Supreme Court has said, basically, you get an open checkbook. Uh, then the, the, the road for appeals goes on and on forever. Uh, yeah. The cost is horrific. But um, anyhow, the death penalty uh, is a very serious situation. And I think the prosecution uh, used it as a hammer and uh, were successful.
1: Yeah. We're talking about another death penalty case, a little bit different in that there wasn't a guilt phase in this. We were only dealing with the penalty phase in this trial, but we're moving to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where Nicholas Cruz has been formally sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of 17 in the Parkland shooting massacre. Cruz was spared the death penalty by a jury who could not reach a verdict. On the ultimate penalty with three jurors unable to recommend death citing his childhood troubles and mental illness families and victims of the shooting gave emotional impact statements condemning cruz's actions and even directing some of their anger at his defense team itself cruz's legal team took offense to some of the impact statements asking the judge to stop the families from attacking the defense counsel Uh, which led to a heated exchange between the judge and the defense. Um, We have some footage of that. We're going to show that to you now.
3: What you are doing right now is highlighting something and making more of a spectacle. So if your office in general does not want to facilitate or incite violence, then we need to just sit down and move on. That's it. There were 18 witnesses, 16 or 18 witnesses that testified today. There was nothing that was said until Ms. McNeil made her point made, and, you know, we're moving on.
2: But is the court going to do anything about maybe stopping it from happening again?
3: When these people are upset about specific things that have gone on from that table, like shooting the middle finger up at this court and laughing and joking, Miss McNeil, be quiet. When these people have sat in this courtroom and watched this behavior from that table and they want to say that they're not happy about it, what is the problem?
2: Judge, I have no problem because I have thick skin. But once you bring in my children, I think that's highly improper. Of- I
3: didn't even know you have children. I don't know what you're talking about. Your children? What about your children?
1: Really heated exchange there. Uh, this is not the first eruption between Cruz's defense and the judge. Previously, the judge became irate when the defense abruptly rested their case after calling only 25 of their 80 planned witnesses. Uh Greg, jump right in. What are your thoughts on the conduct of this judge? It's obviously, we've talked about this, how death penalty cases are make the courtroom incredibly emotionally charged. Uh, but is she going too far here, or or is she warranted in her reaction? What are your thoughts?
2: My thoughts are this is atypical, it's bizarre, and it's unfortunate. Uh, actually, it, it's kind of serendipitous. Actually, I had a client send me some footage and, and started a Twitter thread of the judge hugging the prosecutors and hugging some of the victims after the trial. And you know what, what I saw was a, a jurist amplify the emotions that were in that room. And that's the last thing that you need from a judge. Uh, they need to be the icon of impartiality. Uh, they need to be the uh, symbol of, of justice. Um, you know, they got to call strikes regardless if, if, if it's the home team or not. And right. I just thought this judge played to the cameras. Uh, and, and this was amazing to me. You know, I just tried a federal case last week and, you know, we had thought we were going to call a number of witnesses, uh, based on the state of the proof. We did not We dressed it. Um, that that's typical in doing what we do and you make judgment calls and you make assessments just because the, the defense decided not to, to only call 25 witnesses versus 80 for a, a judge to publicly scold and chide them, uh, I thought was just very uh, it's atypical, it's unfortunate. Uh, so this has just been a very strange case from from the beginning.
1: Yeah, and listen, as defense attorneys, we're used to you know sometimes being antagonistic with the judge. Sometimes it's it, we feel like it's us against the prosecution and the judge, and and we're used to that kind of uh, you know uh, all sides pitted against us. Um, but it does seem as though the judge became embroiled in this case and and started to take some of the things personally. But I'm curious, how about the defense team? There have been reports of them laughing in court, perhaps even making obscene gestures. Do you think the defense team uh went too far in their conduct and decorum in court and may have caused some of that reaction from the judge
2: i think that's a possibility and and, you know i often tell clients you know it's as important how you don't testify and how you don't say anything when you're setting a counsel table when you're taking notes when you uh, stand up when the jury enters they leave um you know there has to be obviously every indicia of respect Control, uh, courtrooms are theater. Uh, body language is, is it? Body language is language. You're communicating, and if you yeah. communicate disrespect or unpreparedness, um, I think it, it translates. But you know, the other thing, Joshua, I was doing some commentary and, and got to see some of the testimony live. And when when you heard the testimony from some of the students at the time, uh, when the AR-15 w- was being shot and it, 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 just the raw mental imagery of young people getting torn apart by the bullets. Uh, the reverberation of the gun was so loud, the ceiling tile, uh, it, it, it just they shattered and, and it was like it was fog or snow. Uh, it shook the whole school. Uh, the, when that, the cameras would pan to the audience, you saw literally you know, the parents of all these individuals just there, aghast, teary-eyed, hugging each other. So if there ever was a case that the lawyers and the judges, for their clients and, and for the, the system, uh, needed to show control and respect, this was it. Uh, and I think that control and respect uh, was lacking uh, on all sides. Now, I don't think, you know, normally, uh, I'm criticizing and, and say, God, the prosecution was playing theatrics. They got out of control. Uh, they were, you know, too much vitriol and acrimony. But, but you know, really, it, it became the judge and the defense. Um, and just very unfortunate in a case of this magnitude.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of those impact statements. Some of it started to be directed towards the defense team itself. And um, first of all, let me just say, I, I give these family members incredibly wide latitude for what they have suffered, the, the, the almost unimaginable uh, loss and suffering that these people have gone through. Um, it's obviously you know still on the surface for them, and they wanted to see some sort of closure here that they feel that they were robbed of. So we understand all of that. Um, but I'm curious about your thoughts on directing some of their thoughts towards the defense team. And I want to point out the fact so that people understand the jurors were outside of the courtroom for much of the back and forth between the judge and the defense and for much of the defense arguments on things that they want to do. And much of the stuff that might have caused these family members who weren't outside of the courtroom were actually sitting in the courtroom watching these arguments and why they might have a different reaction to the defense team itself than the jurors may have felt. And that's just kind of a point I wanted to explain for folks. But what are your thoughts on uh, how this became kind of personal towards the defense team for some of these family members?
2: I thought this jury was, uh, with all the professional certainty I have, going to return a verdict of death. Uh, So I'll tell you what I'm impressed with is the voir dire uh, that the defense did in this case to have jurors selected that that did follow the law as they went through this process. So having said that, I think when you have families, and I've had it happen to me, um, they, they express their, their emotions uh, toward the defendant, um, and that's part of the victim impact statement. I mean, victim impact. Uh, there's not a victim that gets up and says, I'm very happy Uh, I'm a victim of a crime or my son, daughter, husband was was murdered. Um, But, you know, there's some transference. Uh, When you do your job well and when you cross-examine people, when you argue for uh, mitigation, uh, a victim's not going to like it. And I think if you're the defense counsel, I mean, it it comes with the territory and the game. I've had people point their finger. I've had people say, how dare you defend this pedophile? Uh, And you know what you do? Uh, you sit there and you give them the respect that they're entitled under the law to give a victim impact statement. Um, as long as they are expressing their feelings to you as a defense lawyer in the courtroom, um, I think that's their, their right. Now, once they leave that door and I'm walking down that hall, I've had people try to follow me to my car, you know, game over. Uh, inappropriate. <laughs> I take it right. personally and I, I, I get on the phone. But but you know what, uh, a case of this nature, that's just part of of what you and I do, Joshua.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now I agree with you. It, it it it's it. This is one of those things where it's it it's hard to. Kind of blame anyone for how uh, emotions can arise and bubble over, especially when you're dealing with this kind of a loss. This kind of a case, as horrific as it is, uh, the frustration that must be felt by the family members to not get the verdict that they were expecting. And, and I agree with you. I think that a lot of people were expecting. Um, it's it's un, un, unfortunate that it won't bring them closure, but it is the close to the case because it is final now that he has been uh, sentenced to life without parole so turning now to los angeles where the first of our two ongoing ho- high profile cases are taking place danny masterson's third accuser described in court as jane doe number two took the stand this wednesday and the actor's ongoing rape trial she described a sexual encounter with masterson as quote-unquote rape adding he was like a predator while the accuser was also a member of the church of scientology a trait shared by all three accusers and masterson Jane Doe, too, did not initially come forward to the church with her allegations against Masterson. She testified she had previously come forward to the church with allegations against a prior boyfriend who was a member of the church and was told by a chaplain that she, and this is a quote, was not under any circumstances to think that about another member or to accuse another member of that or to repeat it to law enforcement some pretty strong uh, instructions uh, from the church the witness later forwarded um, came forward pardon me with allegations to police 13 years after the alleged incident and waited three years for charges to be filed against the actor while the third accuser also alleged that she had suffered intimidation and harassment from church officials since making her allegation public the judge instructed the jury that claims of the harassment by the church of Scientology are not being presented as truth. Greg, first of all, I want to talk about this instruction because I'm sure you've encountered this many times before. We see this all the time where judges allow in evidence, in this case it's it's hearsay, but instructed the jury not to use it for the proof of what's being for the proof of the truth of what's being said, uh, but for another purpose. Are jurors in your experience able to split hairs like this when they hear this kind of really damaging testimony?
2: Absolutely not.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, one of the most frustrating things that, that uh, you encounter is when a judge gives a curative instruction after the prosecution or a witness blurts out something that has been suppressed or they shouldn't say uh, that has been already at a bench conference rule prejudicial uh, because you can't unring the bell. Yeah, uh, You can say, okay, forget what you saw or whatever. Um, I mean, it's, Ludicrous! It's like having a, a, a long discussion or an argument or a debate, and then say, "Oh, by the way, I want you to forget uh, thirty seconds of what I said there." Move on. I mean, it's 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 legal fiction. Yeah. Um, the the other thing that that is frustrating is when a judge lets in powerful testimony, and in this case, the, the, this cult-like behavior of the Church of Scientology um, is significant. Because if I'm the defense, I want to know why you, the victim, waited 13 years, 14 years, why this, why there's no fresh complaint, why there's no forensics. And when you have a sex case with no evidence and this delay, uh, you're really, I mean, hamstrung if you're defense, because basically it's their credibility in the words. So now you've got this, this uh, I listen to the cult excuse to, to bol- bolster their credibility. So I think the judge should have not allowed the testimony because uh, its probative value, if any, is clearly outweighed uh, by its prejudicial effect. So, you know, now you have a explanation as to why the delay, uh, it kind of uh, broad brushes and and kind of props up their credibility. Um, So I think it's very unfortunate for the Masterson campus
1: yeah i i appreciate the way that you explain that i want to get a little bit into the weeds on this because it it is something that that bothers me as well as i can tell it it, it bothers you we talk about these curative instructions that something happens in court um and somehow the judge just turns to the jury and it is you know some sort of jedi mind trick told them to just ignore that or only use it for a certain purpose and not for another um and and, and i agree with you It it simply cannot be done. We're asking them to perform uh, a mental gymnastics that they just cannot do. And just so people understand, the reason for judges doing this is they're trying to avoid a mistrial. Right? They don't. They don't want something to happen in court that that turns the whole trial upside down, and now they have to start all over. So we understand that, and they want to try to just cure it, curative state uh, uh, instruction. You know, take it, it, somehow handle it as the trial continues to go on. But in an instance like this, it almost highlights that statement. And and the problem here, and if you could flesh this out for us, the problem here is she is giving, she is telling the jurors a statement that was told to her outside of court. So in other words, hearsay, and the defense has no ability to cross-examine the person making that statement, what they meant by it, when when it was made, and if it was made at all. T- t- talk to us more about why that is so problematic. Well,
2: one of the hallmarks of justice system is your right to confrontation under the Confrontation Clause of, of the United States. And when you have hearsay, hearsay within hearsay, um, you know, you, you lose the right to confront your accuser. And then the judge does this legal fiction by, um, you know, the definition of, of hearsay that we learned in first year law school an out of court statement by a declarant offered for the truth of the matter asserted. Well, when the judge goes down this rabbit hole and just says, well, it's not offered for the truth, um, so we'll let it in. Well, well why, why why, are we having statements that aren't offered for the truth? Why are they relevant or probative? Because this this issue is, I mean, clearly to me, offered for the truth. I didn't come forward because I was pressured by the church, by the right. cult. I mean, there's no way around it. So if you're the defense, you can't cross-examine the hearsay declaration—you uh, can't uh, have your protect your, right, your client's right of confrontation. Uh, so I just think it's a—it's an incredible problem. But this concept, Joshua, of when a curative instruction uh, that that the judge can perform a judicial lobotomy and remove <laughs> things from a juror's uh, consideration is is bunk. And as you said, what everybody knows except the jury is. Uh, the judge doesn't want to grant a mistrial. And um, so we're going to just go ahead and um, you know, do an instruction, and then uh, maybe you'll win it in the Court of Appeals.
1: Right. All right. Last point on this one. Um, in spite of the evidence that has been presented by the prosecution to explain this incredible um, delay in reporting uh, these allegations, 13 years is still a very long time. Do you think the prosecution is still going to have problems with that delay, even with the explanations that they presented, or are those explanations good enough?
2: You know, uh, I think if it was one accuser, uh, I I think it would be easier to show um, some bias, some uncertainty, problems of recollection. I would call uh, an somebody that's an expert to forensic psychologist on the issue of memory, um, you know do everything I could in my power to find out any other statements, any other things that she said or done that's inconsistent. But then when you have uh, not he said she said, but he said she said she said she said, <laughs> uh, I, I think it, it, it bolsters their credibility. So uh, in and of itself, I think that delay, with no fresh complaint, no forensics, would be a hard hurdle for the prosecution to overcome. You have the specter of people wanting to jump on the Me Too bandwagon. you got somebody with some fame and fortune. Uh, But, you know, when you get multiple people uh, saying the same thing, I I think that's a a high
1: hurdle for the defense. Yeah. I agree with you. Well, now moving down the hall of the same courthouse to probably the poster child of the Me Too movement, um, a celebrity massage therapist testified in Harvey Weinstein's sexual assault trial about her encounters with a former Hollywood mogul. Weinstein faces 11 charges, including sexual assault and rape alleged by five different women. The massage therapist, referred to only as Jane Doe, is the second of Weinstein's accusers to take the stand. The witness testified to visiting Weinstein on multiple occasions. In each instance, she alleges Weinstein cornered the victim and groped her while masturbating in front of her. She claimed the embarrassment and shame she felt from the encounters kept her from coming forward. However, she allegedly revealed the indiscretions to another client, actor Mel Gibson. When the witness originally came forward to police, she only disclosed the initial assault, which the defense focused on in their cross-examination, arguing that the victim's recollection of the events has changed over time. More of Weinstein's accusers are set to take the stand in the following weeks, including Jennifer Newsom, the wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom. Greg, right from the start, um, this victim alleges that she kept coming back to perform massages for Weinstein in spite of the fact that she had been sexually assaulted multiple times, according to her testimony. How is that going to play out for jurors, uh, you think?
2: I think it's highly significant, but you know, then again, it didn't work in the Bill Cosby case when people said they were drugged and had sex and oops, by the way, I came by the back the next night to be drugged and have sex and Whatever, um, I think it's a problem because you've you got to see if it you know, was the conduct consensual. I mean, so if you were assaulted, it was non-consensual. You were in, in imminent fear, bodily harm, sexual battery, whatever, and you do it time after time after time. Um, I think that's that's a problem um, if you are the prosecution, and I think that's going to be a significant issue uh, with her credibility.
1: Yeah. A lot of these witnesses, uh, the, the, the victims, have, uh, are, are, have already or will testify, I imagine, uh, you know, just based upon what we've heard in opening statements, that the reason they didn't come forward earlier um, and allowed this to kind of continue was their fear of this very powerful man, especially in the world of Hollywood. He basically ran the place for a decade there, and they felt that they couldn't do anything or say anything against him. This victim is a little different. I wanted you to kind of tease that out because she's a massage therapist. So she doesn't have that, those same kind of motivations. Is that something you think the defense will exploit?
2: You know, absolutely. I think so. And I, I think, you know, you, you have in the, the Masterson case, you know, the control and inspector of the church of Scientology. Uh, but in this case, in Weinstein, everyone says they were afraid. I didn't come forward because he... Um, had the power to blacklist me uh, from Hollywood. Um, you know, I think over time his influence and power has become greatly exaggerated. Now, I think he could have have impacted uh, some individuals' careers, uh, but I don't think he was the gatekeeper to every single job in every single studio uh, in Hollywood. Um, this person's a little different, so I think. Again, you have these multiple uh, accusers, uh, but if you look at the microcosm of just this testimony, um, I just think it's problematic.
1: I want to talk to you a little bit about um, trial tactics and, and calling upon your own experience if you have some with cross-examining uh, female victims of alleged sexual assault. The defense team in this case has, has been apparently by reports very aggressive in their cross-examination. Uh, the added element is that both of the defense attorneys are male, they're cross-examining female victims. How delicate of a of a of a of a task is that to cross examine someone who's been obviously traumatized from you know crying on the stand, one of the witnesses has been. And how aggressively do you feel it is um smart strategically for the defense attorneys to go after these victims? No,
2: yeah, Joshua, I think that's a question uh that really can't be answered uh the last case i tried on court tv i came back at lunch break and we've gotten a, an email from the viewer uh basically said uh, mr isaacs is better than that he needs to to back off of that female witness I, and you know i didn't think i was i was i was leaning so so i don't know i mean it's a judgment call on on each witness it's a judgment call with the responses I mean, if you're going in and you're trying to show this person is lying and trying to you know, ruin your client's reputation and send them to the penitentiary, uh, then you're going to have some professional disdain uh, when you ask those questions uh, because you've got someone that is trying to speculate and fabricate your client uh, in the penitentiary. On the other hand, if you think there's somebody that may be mistaken or it was a, it was a case of, of, of consent or, or whatever. You might be a little more delicate. You might want to you know, have use a scalpel uh, and, and not a, a butcher knife when, when you're going through that cross examination. So, you know, it, it really depends on how hard you, you, you hit the, the gas. I think in making a judgment call, a that witness. And I don't think you just go in, um, you know, you've got to be able to shift gears and react. I don't think you go in saying, I'm just going to. subtly soft pedal this or I'm just going to go in and and decimate this witness I I think you've got to be able to react have an organized cross and you know when it comes time to to be firm you're firm when it comes time to be subtle you're subtle but you know jurors pick up on acrimony and theatric for the sake of acrimony because you and I know I mean it's easy to get there and, 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 and be theatrical and be loud and whatever And, you know, oftentimes that doesn't do your client a favor. Um, So could it be a a good strategy? Absolutely. Could it be a terrible mistake? Absolutely. Uh, So it kind of remains to be seen.
1: Yeah. I I, I think it's one of the most difficult things that defense attorneys have to do in criminal cases is this exact scenario of cross-examining witnesses who have been, uh, according to their allegations, you know, Severely traumatized by your client, and that you have to get up there and somehow cross-examine cross-examine them without making it look like you're you're further kind of victimizing and traumatizing them. And uh, you pointed you, you you made this point, and the way I've always thought about it is that you have to wait for the witness to give you permission to get more aggressive with them. And what I mean by that is they're going to start digging their heels in and they're going to start kind of talking back to you and they're going to start kind of um, perhaps giving attitude to the the attorney doing the cross-examination and then you can dig in but if they're not if they're a mess on the stand it, there's it's very difficult to kind of try to handle that but still poke holes in their testimony and so we'll see how this kind of continues to uh, flesh itself out with the, as these witnesses continue to testify in this case but one last point i wanted to talk to you about this is something that you've alluded to before that you have experience with um the jurors in this case there are no uh, cameras in courtroom currently but they know they have to know the media attention and notoriety that this case has first of all they're hearing witnesses talk about what a kind of powerful celebrity like person weinstein was they're hearing the names of 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 all sorts of famous people being mentioned in court. They're perhaps going to hear from a celebrity witness like Mel Gibson. uh, One of the Jane Doe's is the wife of the governor. How does this affect jurors? They see crowds when they come into the courtroom every single day of people trying to get into that courtroom. It's a packed courtroom, even without the cameras. How do you think that affects jurors?
2: I think you've got to embrace that dynamic because it's to pretend it's not going to happen and judge to, to, again, do this magical judicial instruction. I hereby instruct you not to, to get on uh, social media at night, watch TV, do all this stuff. Uh, it's it's going to happen. Um, you know, in the Johnny Depp case, I think that was a good example. I mean, you know, obviously, you could tell people were, were listening and looking at media reports throughout the trial, witnesses, uh, etc. So. I just think you have to embrace that dynamic and use it to the fact that sometimes the specter of celebrity can make a witness less credible, uh, maybe that somebody is more eager to be involved, um, but it's a reality that I just think has to be uh, dealt with, and you as the lawyer um, don't need to be starstruck, but, but to pretend that these 12 people don't see the limousines and the TV cameras when they walk in and walk out. Um, It's just not reality.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Well, we will continue to keep an eye on both of these cases as they uh, eventually reach their conclusion over the next couple of weeks. But in the meantime, that's the end of our show. Greg, thank you so much for coming on this week. Uh, Where can people go to find out more about you?
2: Um, Check our website or firm um, isaacslawfirm.com. And you can uh, Google uh, our name. We have a number of social media presences and uh, a lot of cases that we've been involved with that we list uh, on our website. But Joshua, it was a pleasure. It's uh, interesting talking to a fellow lawyer uh, that likewise offers some uh, interesting
1: insights. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ. And uh, please visit my website at com, where you can find out what I've been up to lately or if you're just looking for a lawyer. And you can find our Sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.